Our scripture reading as we continue our study in the gospel according to John is found in John chapter 6. We'll begin with verse 15 and I think we'll read through 35 or 37. You have it there on your scripture sheet. Jesus has just fed 5,000 at least 5,000 folks out in the wilderness area with five loaves of barley bread and two fish. And the crowd was overwhelmed. Then beginning with verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. 
last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And that theme continues through the rest of the sixth chapter. It really does. Uh, and that's the way I would introduce a message. Just get that in your mind. Somebody says, what's the, the sixth chapter of John about? Well, it's about the feeding of the 5,000. And what comes after that is inextricably entwined with that event. And you'll realize it as we go on, uh, not only this Sunday, but next Sunday. But this morning, I'm saying this to warn you that this is a thinking person's message. If you're going to understand what happened there and Jesus walking on the water, you've got to think. Now, it's not going to be boring. I don't want to put you to sleep, but you're going to have to think this morning about this. So with that, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Oh, Father, just now we are opening your word. And John Sartell cannot teach it. Right now, we come with this attitude. I come with this attitude, and this church comes with this attitude. That John Sartell cannot teach this so that it will make any difference in our lives. So that we'll be changed in the very core of our being, whether it's the first time or what's been happening, continuing of our lives since the Holy Spirit wrought that first change. Oh, Father, we look to you for you to teach us. We're your children. We're wayward children, sinful children, errant children. And we need to be brought back to your word to be reminded who you, who you are and who we are. So, Father, teach us. We're your children. Teach us. Tell us the story, your story, the story of Jesus. Tell it to us, Father. For his glory, we pray. Amen. Jesus, the storm rider. This morning, I want you to become a part of the preparation of this message. When, so let's begin. When I first studied the passage, I struggled. And this wasn't this week. I've been here before. When I first studied it, though, I struggled with one basic question. Why did John put this miracle of Jesus walking on the water at this point in his gospel, at this point in the chapter? I struggled for some time with this question. You say, well, why does that matter? Just preach the fact of the miracle that it did happen. Well, I'll tell you why it matters. John only included seven miracles in his gospel. Seven miracles plus the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there were hundreds more miracles. Matthew and Luke and Mark record all this host of miracles. But John knew that. 
This was the last gospel. John was familiar with their gospels. There was no need for him to do that. Only seven miracles chosen carefully. Why did he include this miracle? The miracle of Jesus walking on the water. But even more, why did he put it where he did? On the surface, it just seems random. He feeds, he feeds 5,000 people, and then he walks across the lake. Why does it matter where he put it? Good question. Let me show you. The sixth chapter opens with Jesus miraculously taking the five loaves and two fish. And feeding at least 5,000. We read it was 5,000 men, so it may have been 7,500. It could have been 10, including women and children. The people were overwhelmed. They were so excited. This was a profound thing. They wanted, they wanted to make him king right there. Look at John 6, the 15th verse. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus, we're going to make you king, whether you like it or not. Now, Jesus immediately sends the disciples away, telling them to go across the lake. And he himself went off to the mountain to be alone. The next day, on the other side of the lake, Jesus uses the feeding of the 5,000 as a segue into his being the bread of life. We read it this morning. He fed them yesterday on physical bread. He said, but don't look for that. Look for the bread of life, the real bread of life. And this is the same crowd that he had fed. They came across the lake. It was the exact same people. They ask. Any minister worth his salt, what the subject of the sixth chapter of John is, and he will tell you the feeding of 5,000. And Jesus' discourse to the same crowd on being the bread of life. But these same ministers will not mention when they talk to you about the sixth chapter, they won't mention Jesus walking on water. It seems disconnected. However, for some reason, John places the miracle between the feeding of the 5,000 and the discourse. It's like a distraction. Is that what it is? Just a random thing? An interesting event? No, it was not. John had a reason. And Jesus had a reason for walking on the water. And it's inextricably entwined with the feeding of the 5,000 and what comes after. To see that, we're going to look first at the rationale of the disciples. We're going to look at what Jesus did. And then we will look at what Jesus said. First, the rationale of the disciples. Again, go to verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now we're apt to think, and I thought this at first, that John was describing what? He was describing what these 5,000 people were going to do. 
He was describing the thinking of the crowd. But as I worked through this scene, I realized that that was not only the rationale of the crowd, it was the rationale of the disciples. If you know anything of the 12 disciples, they thought that way every day of his ministry. Remember one week before his crucifixion? As the disciples entered Jerusalem with that great crowd, we call it the triumphal entry of the Messiah into Jerusalem, the great crowd celebrating the entrance of the capital city. The Messiah had finally come to his throne. The disciples actually thought that day that Jesus would take the throne in Jerusalem and be the physical king and bring Israel back to prominence. They were decimated. You know this. We see it every Easter when we celebrate the the cross and the resurrection. They were decimated by his crucifixion because their plan for Jesus had been entirely different. As they climbed in the boat to go across the lake, they were excited. The crowd gets it. They want him to be king. He's going to be king. And they're the inner circle. They would rule in Jerusalem with him. He had just fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Just think. Just think of having a king that could do that. There would not be any more famine. There would be food on every table. This would be the king that would bring in heaven itself. Mark makes an interesting comment about the rationale of the disciples, and you've got to see this. When Jesus came to them and got in the boat, Mark writes this. It's in Mark 6, 51. It's on your scripture sheet. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand. But he adds, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. That was Mark's way of saying, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. What was the rationale of the disciples? They did not understand Jesus' purpose with the miracle of the loaves. They saw the sign. They completely missed its significance. The rationale of the disciples. Secondly, what did Jesus do? Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples came down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind and was, that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Jesus sees that they've rowed for several hours It was slow going against a headwind. The storm did not seem to be life-threatening. It was just torturous to try to get across the lake. What did Jesus do? He went to them by walking on the water. Before Before he did that, earlier, when he had left the disciples by the shore, He gave specific instructions for the disciples to go ahead without him. 
Look at Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. Look at that word immediately. There's some urgency about this. He wanted to get the disciples away from this crowd. The crowd was saying, King, King Jesus, King Yesu. Jesus had other plans. And he gets the disciples away from the crowd. He sent them, folks, think about this. Jesus sent them into that storm. He knew there would be a storm. He knew there would be wind. He knew what he was going to do. He had a purpose. So after some time, Jesus strikes out across the waters. Don't you wish you'd have been there? Think about that. I thought about that this week. Terry and I were at at the beach earlier in the summer. And I thought about being being on the beach. What if I had just walked down to the shore there at Destin and just started walking and walked right out on the water? There would have been people from all over. Some of them, the unbelievers might have been saying, look, that man can't swim. Jesus just walked out. This was no walk on calm waters. The winds were fierce. The waves were high. Matthew and Martin described the storm. They had been rowing for most of the night. Jesus came to them, Matthew tells us, during the fourth watch. That would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they'd been out there. They started in the evening, early evening. And they'd been out there for hours. Now, previously, they had been with Jesus in a similar boat. In a much worse storm. You remember that early in Jesus' ministry? They they thought the storm would sink the boat. They were afraid for their lives. And Jesus commanded the storm to stop. He said, stop. And the water became calm immediately. And the storm stopped. Now, such storms were not unusual on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. Winds come off the Mediterranean, and all around the Sea of Galilee, there's hills, mountains, and these winds come over the mountains, come down on the lake. And this this happens frequently. But this time, the storm was not life-threatening. Making a miserable night for them. This was an easy trip in calm waters. So Jesus was not merely walking on the water. He was striding on high waves against a severe wind in the middle of the night. The disciples seeing, they think they're seeing a ghost. And they cry out in fear. And Jesus speaks to them. So, what's the rationale of the disciples? What did Jesus do? Thirdly, what did Jesus say to them? But he said to them, it is I. Do not be 
afraid. Now, at first reading, we don't think Jesus said that much. They were panicked at what they saw. They thought he was a ghost coming out of the darkness. We think he was only calming them. He was saying, it's only me. Jesus, don't be afraid. But what he said was far, far more. When he said, it is I, or what's translated that, Jesus used a Greek phrase, ego, Amy. Ego, Amy. In the Gospel of John, we're about to come to the famous I am passages. In this very chapter, we heard him say this morning, I am the bread of life. He went on in chapter 8 to say, I'm the light of the world. In chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. In each of those, Jesus uses the phrase, ego, amy, means I am. But it is far, far more intense than that. Ego literally means I or I am. Amy means the same thing. He could have used either word. It's really repetitious. I am that I am. Now, hang on. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Septuagint is the Greek translation. And you remember, I mentioned this morning, and talking about the sanctuary. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush, and God calls him, calls him to go back to Egypt, lead his people Israel out. He said, I'll empower you. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? What's your name? What shall I tell the people? They're going to ask who sent you. Who is this God that sent you? And God said, you tell them, I am that I am sent you. In that Greek translation of the Old Testament, do you know what it said? that same Greek phrase, ego, amy. And that's the word that Jesus used. So let's put that together. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. The disciples and the crowd intended to compel him to become king. He tells the crowd the next day, look at verse 26. You are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He was saying, the sign is sounding to you who I am. Who have you ever known that did this? And you only, you only see what I can do for you. That's it. Let's make him king. He'll feed us. There'll be food on every table. Jesus rebukes them. You're seeking me not because you saw a sign and know who I am. You ate your fill with the loaves. If they would have really understood, they would not have said, let's make him king. They would have said, he is king of heaven and earth. They would have fallen on their faces. So what does Jesus do? He quickly dismisses everyone. 
He comes striding across the white caps of stormy waters driven by high winds. He's not feeding 5,000. He's not healing someone. He's not bringing 120 gallons of wine to a wedding. He's not saving the disciples' lives. He's shouting at them with his actions and infants' words, This is who I am. I'm the Lord of creation. This is about Jesus. John leaves something out of his record. Matthew records that Peter said to Jesus, if it's you, if it's really you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on, Peter. He enabled Peter to walk on the water until Peter started looking at the white caps and feeling the wind. And he began to sink and Jesus reached down and picked him up out of the water. And John knew Matthew had already told that story. And John left it out. He was saying and is saying this is all about Jesus. It's not about Peter. Jesus, the Son of God, was making himself known. Now, Matthew tells us that evening for the first time, the disciples momentarily got it. Look at Matthew 14, 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the Son of God. There's not many places in the gospel where it says, and they worshiped him. It's one thing to say, you're the son of God. It's another thing to fall on your face and worship. That's what they did in that boat. You remember in the, in the boat where Jesus, in the night that he had this awful storm and it was, it was about to sink the boat. The disciples were about to lose their lives, and Jesus stopped the storm. It, it, wasn't, it didn't take a half an hour to calm down. It went from a fierce storm that capsizes boats, rain everywhere, to, in a matter of seconds, the perfect calm. What did the disciples say then? They said, who is this? Who is this? That the wind and the waves obey him. Well, this evening that we read this morning, when Jesus strode through the storm on the water, the disciples did not say, who is this? They worshiped him. That means they bowed down before him as God. They said, you are the son of God. It was only momentarily. For they still returned to their own plans that Jesus would reign in Jerusalem and they would reign with him. They still would not hear him when he spoke of dying on a cross. And what happened because of that? What happened? Because they didn't get it. What happened when he was on the cross? Their faith died. Died with him. They were not saying on that Friday evening or that Saturday, awful dark Saturday, they were not saying, he's God of all creation. He came walking through a storm on the sea, remember, in Galilee, and he'll come walking out of that tomb. He will take that cross and literally slay the power of Satan with it. That's not what they were saying. Jesus was past tense. It's over. We had thought he was, but he wasn't. 
So what do we take away from this? Sometimes we will hear well-meaning Christians say, make Jesus the king of your life. Well, these people wanted Jesus to be king. Wasn't that a good thing? People, that's not a good phrase. You don't make Jesus anything. We do not elect him. We don't make him God. He is God. This morning, if you're not a Christian, hear me. The God of the Bible is the God of heaven and earth. He's the God who made you and sustains you. The only issue is whether you'll bow the knee to him. Jesus did not ever ask his disciples, who do you want me to be? He asked them, who do you say I am? And your observation, what are you saying? Your answer does not make me who I am. I am who I am. You don't make Jesus king of your life. He is, whether you like it or not. We need to hear this. Our society has made, and this is, you want to understand our society, and the mess we're in? Any country, any culture that stands up and says, there are no absolutes. There's no absolute evil. There's no absolute right. Any society that does that is going to be in a mess. Our society has made truth a relative thing. You hear it all the time. Well, your truth may not be my truth. My truth may not be your truth. Just have your truth. That's fine for you. I don't need it. The Stanford Research Institute was making a study of how different people think. They devised several short tests to use in their interviews. And they would interview people representing several different vocations. Their first interview was with an engineer. They asked the engineer, what does two plus two make? The engineer did not hesitate. Well, if you mean in absolute terms, two plus two makes four. They thanked the engineer and dismissed him. Next, they brought an architect in and they asked him, what does two plus two make? The architect said, well, there are several possibilities. Two plus two make four, but so does three plus one. Or two and one half and one and one half. They all make four. So it's all a matter of choosing the right option. They thanked him, the architect left. The last of the three was your proverbial attorney. And as you've guessed by now, this story is apocryphal. What does two plus two make? He looked around the room as if he were about to say something secret. He went to the door and he shut it. And he came back and he leaned very close to the interviewers. And he said, Will, tell me, what would you like it to be? That lawyer represents our culture. It does not matter what Jesus said or did or who he is. 
It's just a matter of how you perceive him. Folks, my believing Jesus is a son of God, and I do believe that. My believing that he was born of a virgin by the power of God, and I do believe that. That he is the eternal one who became flesh, I do believe that. My believing those things does not make it true. That's the message of Jesus walking on the water, right there. He is who he is. I am that I am. I did not create the reality of the incarnation. I did not create the reality of the resurrection. Wow. Did the disciples ever need to learn that? Think of the difference it would have made. On that cross, they thought Jesus was a victim of the Sanhedrin and Pilate. Jesus was not the Lord from glory who chose the cross, not in their mind. He was a victim. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and Pilate, and the Romans. He was forced upon the cross by Pilate and the Romans and the Sanhedrin. It's a lie. If they had completely understood Jesus walking on the water and assimilated that into the core of their being and understanding, they would have been waiting outside the tomb because he is the Lord of all. There's nothing that is Lord over him. Nothing. Not then, not the Romans, not Pilate, not the Sanhedrin. Today, not Washington, not Moscow, not Beijing. There's nothing. He is still, I am that I am, God and ruler over all. He was there at creation. He took on flesh in the incarnation. He died an atoning death for our sins. He came victoriously from that tomb. He ascended to glory and is reigning in glory right now. And he's coming again. Nothing you do Nothing you say can make that untrue. Nothing you can do or say will stop it. Your actions and your words will never determine who Jesus is. I came to this point I said there's only one hymn to sing all glory be to Christ
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.